Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. We have also got David Scott Milton, and I'm sure that's the main reason why most of you are here. Um, woohoo! So you may know this already. Uh, he began as an actor and a playwright in New York, and you can tell that the second he starts speaking, because he's got that voice. Uh, several of his plays have appeared off-Broadway. One, called Skin, won the Neil Simon, Neil Simon Playwriting Award. Uh, after moving to Los Angeles, he began to focus more on writing fiction and for film. He's continued to be involved in the theater. He has also taught creative writing at a maximum security prison. Uh, Iron City is his sixth novel. It's one he'll be reading from tonight and I plan to let him tell you a little bit more about it. So please join me in welcoming David Scott Milton. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really so uh, um, startled and astonished. You know, whenever anything like this comes up and anybody shows up, I'm always amazed. You know, I always assume that three or four people are going to be here and then when more come up, but but also what 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 really moves me is that I, the, the the book Iron City is about it takes place in Pittsburgh, and we have three Pittsburghers here tonight, <laughs> so a lot of the allusions in the in the in the, in the book they they know intimately, and uh, the, the 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 section I'm going to read doesn't go into the Pittsburgh stuff so much, but the book is filled with a lot of and. Uh, I'm almost tempted, I'm not going to do it though, but Art Brumwasser sitting here, he was one of the fabled, uh, he went through a fabled period in our neighborhood and so it's a long story but uh, he, was a, he was a great hero in, in Squirrel Hill for many years and I'm sure they still probably talk about it, uh, what, what Art did. And I, well, it's a... I'll tell the story very, very, very quickly. Uh, there was a big rivalry between Squirrel Hill and Greenfield. Squirrel Hill was predominantly middle class and Jewish. Greenfield was predominantly uh, non-Jewish and working class. And, uh, and one of the fun things that the kids from Greenfield used to do is they would make forays into Squirrel Hill and just beat up a Jew, you know, just for, for the heck of it, you know. And, uh, and you know that was their sport, and uh, they beat up Art, and I think put you in the hospital, didn't they? Uh, no, but they beat you badly. And he found out he found out who the guys were who did it. There was three of them, three, four, four. And over a period of three or four years, he hunted down each one of them <laughs> and beat them so bad that I think several of them ended up in the hospital. And the and the and 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 the, and the the last one, and the word was out. 
if anybody ever saw whatever the guy's name was, to, to call him at any hour of the day or night, <laughs> and uh, and they spotted this one guy in the in the in the uh, bowling alley on Murray Avenue, and the call went out to Art. And when Art came around and the guy saw him, he began to quake because he knew what what his fate was going to be. And Art and Art got all four of them over a period of three or four years, you know. So, <laughs> so, so he's one of the one of the Squirrel Hill heroes. Uh, anyhow, uh, um, I'm going to read before I before I actually read from the book. I'm going to read a little essay I wrote. Uh, I started, when they reprinted my novels, I, I, I ended up writing prefaces for all of them. And the prefaces usually dealt with how I came about writing the book. And it's, it's kind of a, a silly thing for a writer to do because in some ways writers are magicians and when you tell how you came about writing it, you're, you're giving away the magic trick, you know. But, but the older I got, the more I began to question myself, why did I write that particular book? What, what impelled me to write this? And I would start to examine it and I would write these prefaces and, and, uh, and I found it very good for me, whether it's good for anybody else. I don't, I don't know, I don't think people are all that interested in my, you know, in, in, the, in what impels me to write something. But I did it for, for Iron City, although we didn't do it as a preface, I just did it as, as, a, as an essay. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna read that, which, which tells you a little bit about the, the genesis of the book, and then I'll read a little bit from the book. Uh, and I, this is on the creation of Iron City. <laughs> Ten years ago, I made the first notes on Iron City. It began as a stage play, became a screenplay, and eventually was written as a novel. It's a companion work to my earlier novel, Kabbalah, though I hadn't planned it that way. Both take place in Pittsburgh, PA, the Squirrel Hill and Greenfield sections, and both involve murder. In Kabbalah, the murder takes place at the very beginning, and the reader knows who the murderer is. It's a chase novel in which two people who grew up with the murderer, a cop consumed by ineradicable envy, and a rabbi obsessed with the ancient Jewish practice of Kabbalah for their own very complex reasons set out to find the fellow who committed the murder. And by the way, you can read the preface to the reissued edition of Kabbalah and you can learn how I came about writing that. And that is kind of an interesting process, how that book came about. Iron City is more traditional, a dense mystery involving a string of bizarre murders that is not solved until the very end. A disgraced ex-cop, Frank Halignac, a Greenfield native, is on a mission to find why the victims are being killed and who the murderer is. Kalignac, who has suffered a tragic loss in his life, seeks to redeem an existence that is drifting, splintering by tracking the murderer who has terrorized the city he grew up in, Pittsburgh, PA, known by people raised there as Iron City. The area that Kalignac operates in, the area where the killer lurks, is a harsh, brutal environment of pimps, hookers, druggies, failed clergy, business hustlers, closed down, rotting steel mills. We follow Kalignac on his increasingly desperate search for the murderer and to prevent further terror and slaughter through the underbelly of Iron City. We find ourselves in a maelstrom of political and church intrigue brutal encounters, surprising duplicities, 
ghosts of the past, furies of the present. There are complex psychological elements in both novels. I've always had a great respect for the mystery form. Dostoevsky was an early influence on my work, as were the novels of the Belgian George Simenon. I admired the seriousness, the complexity in their works. Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, Brothers Karamazov, The Possessed, Simenon, The Man Who Watched Trains Go By, Bell, The Brothers Rico. They were less whodunits than whydunits, mysteries of character. They were about peeling away levels of reality to reach the core of a human being, the person's soul. Iron City is a mystery that's not solved until the end, and I'm limited in what I can reveal about what propelled me to write the story. Uh, it involves a series of murders that are connected by a, a horrific act that has poisoned the community. As is true of all of my novels, it has relevance to my life and the complications in my life. The texture of the neighborhoods I grew up in is a very important element in the book, as it is in many of my books. Squirrel Hill and Greenfield to the south, north of Forbes, above Squirrel Hill. These neighborhoods have become my Dublin. <laughs> what a pretentious comment that is. <laughs> I apologize. North and south sides, the Hill District, my night town. Squirrel Hill proper was middle class, as you moved into Greenfield, the environment became working class. North of Forbes was upper middle class with pockets of wealth. These areas form a checkerboard of class and religious tensions, envies, wounds that fester, scars that remain open. And I mentioned arts, you know, uh, encounters. I must warn you, the novel is dark. I recently read a review of Simonone's The Man Who Watched Trains Go By. And the critic said of the book, despair and negation predominate in George Simonon's The Man Who Watched Trains Go By, a book that I, the critic, considered to be darker than noir. <laughs> I've told you how much I admire Simonon, and it's possible that Iron City is darker than noir. It's possible that all of my novels are darker than noir. Sorry. The book forms an intricate puzzle. I think the writing is strong, of course I would think that. <laughs> I have not condescended to the genre, it's a serious novel, ambitious, ingenious, I think. If you've liked my earlier novels, plays and films, I think you'll like Iron City. It's a tough book, a journey through a hellish world of harsh entanglements, brutal relationships, reversals, twists, piercing insights into the dark night of the soul. To be true, also, there are bright spots and entertainment and the pleasures in what the novel illuminates. Much darkness, but also explosions of light, rich characters, the way they talk and behave, their ambitions, dreams, foibles. And there's also tenderness and love and the generosity that grows from love. I aspired, ultimately, to reveal something true and strong about our lives, about retribution, Foundering dreams, guilt, love lost and love redeemed, to tell one tale of this strange journey we all take to a dusty end. So that's the pretentious introduction to to <laughs> Iron City. Um, okay, and now I'm going to read. Now, now, what uh, uh, what has happened? Frank Kalignac, 
the, the, the hero of the book, left Pittsburgh as a, as, as, as a young man, married, and moved to Tucson, Arizona. Kalinyak was a high school athlete and a, and a prize fighter, amateur prize fighter, right out of high school. And he was a, a bit of a legend in, uh, in, uh, in that area. Um, and he moved to, he moved to um, Tucson, and he became a, a homicide detective. But a very terrible and ironic event occurred. <laughs> How are you? Good, good, good. Um, uh, he had a, a, an eight-year-old daughter who was raped and murdered. And, uh, of course, a, a, a homicide detective, a crime like that occurs to him. The police force does everything they can to, to, to find the killer. And um, with no luck. And he becomes increasingly uh, tortured over this. And he was always a tough cop, but after his daughter was murdered, he becomes kind of out of control. He makes it a, he makes it a, uh, a, a, a pursuit to, to do in bad people. And he beats up some people, and he does some terrible things. And he ultimately, his marriage breaks up. He's drinking heavily, and ultimately, he's he's kicked off the force. And he becomes a kind of part-time private eye, you know, picking up bail bonds, things, things like that. And he's 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 at sea. One of the fellows he grew up with, whose father was a um, political honcho in Greenfield. They called him Greenfield Bobby Mack, the father. And they called the son Little Greenfield Bobby Mack. The father died and the son became an assistant DA. And he knew about Kalinyak, the problems he was having. They're having a high school reunion, their 25th reunion. And one of, them, one of their gang in high school has been murdered. And he was a particularly uh, complex and ugly kind of person as it developed. And he had made a tremendous number of enemies, so nobody was really interested in having his murder solved. Even the police weren't interested. But this, but this Bobby Mack, the assistant DA, felt a kind of loyalty. As he says someplace in the book, he, he says, for all Lang Syne, we should find Jack Dahlgren. That Jack Dahlgren's murder, murderer. So he calls uh, Kalinyak and he says, look, why don't you come to the high school reunion and I think I can work out a deal with you. We'll, we'll put you on as a special investigator and you and I will work and try to find out who killed Jack Dahlgren. We owe it to him for old times, for old Lang Syne, he says. And uh, so Kalinyak comes back to Iron City, to Pittsburgh, uh, really only because he has nothing else to do. One of the early things he learns was that his old friend Jack Dahlgren was much, much... He, they used to always say that when he was in high school, that uh, any... Uh, you know how they always say in high school, uh, most likely to succeed? Well, Jack Dahlgren was most likely to be murdered. You know, because he was he was he was a terrible guy in high school, and he only got worse as he got older. You know, so nobody was surprised 
that this that, that this happened. But still, Bobby Mack and and Kalinyak are going to try to find out who murdered him. And one of the things that that uh, Kalinyak discovers uh, is that Dahlgren would haunt these terrible kind of uh, uh, bars, and he'd pick up prostitutes, and he would beat them up. And that was one of the things he did, uh, among other among other terrible things. And uh, when he was murdered, he was murdered in a very I won't go into the details, but he was murdered in a in a in a, in a motel just outside of Pittsburgh, and a blonde was seen with him, and they think she was a prostitute, but uh, they don't know much about her. Uh, except that they they suspect that she came from this area of these prostitute bars. So uh, Kalinyak visits the bars and he hooks up with a young guy who knows this 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 prostitute who very likely was with Dahlgren that evening. And that prostitute uh, had been beaten by Dahlgren. And the young guy, Corey, tells Kalinyak, when he meets him, he says, I, I, think, I think that she may have done it just because, you know, out of, so he, Dahlgren, uh, Kalinyak tries to find out information about the prostitute, and she's a very slippery character. She's a part-time prostitute. She comes to Pittsburgh a couple of times a month. And nobody knows much about her. They think she may be from West Virginia. She may be from Ohio. Somebody thinks she's from a small town in northern Pennsylvania. And she's German. She has a German accent. So I'm going to pick it up here. It was almost 1 AM when Bobby Mack dropped Kalinyak at the hotel. Bobby was drunk. But he barely showed it. He'd always been able to hold his liquor. Iron City Iron Man, they used to call him, in addition to little Greenfield Bobby Mack. He was driving over to see Teresa McGinnis. That's this his girlfriend. He's divorced. Uh, she gets lonely, he said, by way of explanation. It's not only the sex thing. She likes him as a human being. How did you meet her? We prosecuted her husband. He was a jacker. Doofus, grabbed a truck off Thornhill Run Road, Moon Township, nickel and dime stuff, went away for a long time, left her with bills, no way to survive, I felt bad for her. You did a good thing, Kalinyak says. What difference does it make? Do you think anyone cares? Do you think she cares? Not really. With some effort, Kalinyak got out of the car. Damn, he said. His right leg had stiffened up on him. Munhall game, he said. Billy Hayes, opening kickoff, chop block, Bobby Mack said. Damn, Kalinyak said, ma massaging his leg just above the knee. How do you remember that? Bobby Mack shrugged. Well, you know what this life is, he said. Oh, sure. We're born, Bobby Mack said. We have troubles. Then we die. That makes me feel real good, Kalinyak said. <laughs> My philosophy, Bobby Mack said. He saluted with two fingers and drove off. Kalinyak stretched his leg, tested it then limped toward the hotel's revolving door. He's staying in a hotel in downtown Pittsburgh. As he crossed the hotel lobby, his cell phone rang. It was Preacher, the bartender at the Hot Box Club. It's one of the, one of the clubs that, that, that uh, Dahlgren used to frequent. 
That German girl's here, the one you asked about. Uh, Kalinyak, when he met with Preacher, he, he offered him some money, and he said, if you hear anything, you know, call me at any hour of the day or night. So, and he said, particularly if you hear anything about the German girl, I'll be right there. He hurried back out on Smithfield Street. The cab stand was empty, the block deserted. He crossed Smith, Smithfield and moved at an awkward run down Fifth Avenue to Liberty. He turned on to Ninth Street. The hot box was empty except for Preacher, who was tidying up, washing dishes, drying them haphazardly, and setting them on a towel behind the bar. She just left, he said. Damn, Kalinyak said. Ansi, she just run. May have seen me on the phone. Back outside, Kalinyak looked desperately up and down the block. Someone was almost at the river, moving swiftly away. He ran full out toward the person, a blonde woman in a long leather coat, going at a half run toward the Ninth Street Bridge. At the foot of the bridge, Kalinyak caught up with her. Hey, hey! She turned. A woman in her late 20s. She was beautiful in a hard way. Her eyes were very blue and cold, like shards of ice, as shards of ice. Her face was taut. Who are you? She had a quiet voice, a slight accent. She was wearing a thick, sweet perfume, heavy, overpowering in its cheapness. Underneath her leather coat, she wore a cotton dress. Her hair was piled in a tall bouffant. I want to talk to you. Do I know you? I was a friend of the man who was killed. I don't know any man who was killed. I had heard that you were with him, and on the evening, you have me confused with someone else. You're a professional. She studied Kalinyak, and her gaze was cold and hard. Marble eyes, Kalinyak was thinking. You're a cop, no, she said. No. Her hands were in a leather coat. She brought the right one out. It held a Heckler and Koch 9mm automatic. Just walk with me, she said quietly. Don't do anything, nothing. Don't be stupid or I kill you. She motioned him toward the bridge. What do you want, Kalinyak said. Outwardly calm. Fear was on his heart. A hand of ice gripping it, squeezing it. She indicated that he walk across the bridge. I have my car on the other side, she said. Where are we going, Kalinyak said. To have some fun. There was a frozen, mechanical doll quality about her. And the fear in Kalinyak was so deep that it almost paralyzed him. He said to himself, she's going to kill me. What is this? What's it about? You don't know? No. I think you do. She was a step behind him. The odor of her perfume was like a knife in his brain. He glanced back. He could see under the marble exterior a gleam of excitement in her eyes. And that caused him to feel even greater fear. A large truck sped along 9th Street and up onto the bridge. Just keep walking, she said. As the truck neared them, he could sense that she was distracted, and Kalinak made his move. He grabbed her gun arm and dove to one side, flinging it toward the street. 
flinging her toward the street. The gun went off. The bullet hit the bridge railing with a whine. The truck swerved, and Kalinyak ripped the gun from her. She hit her his, his, She bit his hand, and the gun fell. She dove for it, but he kicked at it, and it slid under the walkway and under the railing and disappeared into the water below. The truck driver, a large man in a dark sweatsuit, sweatshirt, was out of his truck, a tire iron in one hand. The German girl ran across the bridge for the north side of the river. Kalinyak started after her, and the truck driver hit him across the back with the tire iron. Kalinyak felt the air rush from him, an intense pain across his shoulders. I'm a cop, he yelled. He had pulled the plastic ID card Bobby Mack had prepared for him. The Allegheny District Attorney, Special Investigator, the car said. The truck driver looked warily at him. He reached out and took the ID and studied it. I thought it was a mugging or something, he said. Drive across the bridge. The driver climbed up into the truck and Kalinyak got into the passenger side. It was a yeast truck, Federal Yeast. The driver's name on his sweatshirt was Casey. The interior of the truck smelled rancid. Got to get this stuff out to the bakeries early, Casey said. At the far end of the bridge, there was a parking area. They drove down the length of the lot. There were a half dozen cars scattered about. Kalinyak got out and investigated each car. They were all locked. I can't wait, Casey said. Kalinyak straightened up and rotated his head. You damn near broke my back. You should have wore a uniform. Here for your troubles. He threw Kalinyak a loaf of foul-smelling federal yeast wrapped in wax paper, then drove off. Kalinyak walked back across the bridge. He paused at where he and the girl had scuffled. He gazed down into the black water of the river. He noted where the gun had fallen. He marked the spot with a chunk of the yeast and threw the rest into the water. The door at the hot box club was locked. He banged on it and Preacher let him in. She come in about an hour or so before you showed, he said, sipping at a cup of black coffee. Said she was waiting for the fellow. What's his name was in here with you? Corey. Said she was waiting for this Corey. I figured maybe you was meeting both of them. Then I decided to call you. Corey show. She called someone and took off. Hey, damn, hard work talking, telling tales. Know what I mean? My mouth here is getting fatigued. Kalinyak passed him a $20 bill, reminding himself to submit an expense chip to Bobby Mack. Oh, that make it better, Preacher said. Yeah, that good. Someone was tapping on the front door glass, a blonde, godly dress with thick makeup. She had two friends with her, similarly attired. Preacher opened the door a crack. Hey, skankos, Preacher said, closing time. Who you calling a skank, Jigger? Short, dark-haired, Spanish-looking girl said. If the fool shits, Preacher said. It's only 5'2", the darker girl said. The bartender shrugged. What can I do you? Preacher said. Straight shots, whiskey, the blonde said. She was tall and quite attractive. Doubles. She wagged a folded bill between her thumb and forefinger. Preacher took it. They moved inside. The third girl, a dumpy redhead, said, got to clear our pallets after a night, night of blowjobs. The other girls laughed. Imp, Preacher said. Imp will be fine, the blonde said. But make sure it's imp, not old rot gut bar whiskey, and put up three irons after Also, Preacher poured out double shots of imperial whiskey and three bottles of Iron City beer. Hey, you, the dark-haired girl said, indicating Kalinyak. Want a party? Kalinyak shook his head no. We'll give you three for two. What else are you going to give him, Preacher said. 
If he's lucky, it'll just be the clap. Ooh, the girl said, slip one, slip another, slip me, you slip your mother. Ooh, the other two girls said, slip fight, slip fight. Nah, slip fight with you girls is be nasty to the mentally defective. Do you know that German girl? Kalinyak said to the redhead. Which is that? You know the German girl. You know the German girl, preacher said. Standoffish bitch, the tall blonde said. Yeah, I know her. Where can I find her? She looked at her girlfriends. They shrugged. What, you in love with her? The blonde said, laughing. I don't even know her, Kalinyak said. What about her friend, the blonde said. Guy's always with asking for her. The guy with the mustache, Corey. Yeah, what about him? Yeah, I know him. What else can you tell me? She's a loner, free agent, the blonde said. Comes in every now and then, makes her score. Then we don't see her for a while. I get the feeling she lives out somewhere, maybe West Virginia, Ohio. Could be straight housewife, you know, looking to make a little extra spending money. You a cop? Not really. What does that mean? It means not really. Cops been asking for it, the blonde said, ever since Dahlgren was killed. You know Dahlgren? I knew him, the blonde said. Good? Better than good. What's the guy, what's that guy to her, Corey? The girls didn't answer. He or Pimp? They busied themselves with their drinks. What's your price, Kalinyak said to the blonde. She looked at Kalinyak a long time. You have sad eyes, she said. Oh, please, the dark-haired girl said. I'm not vice, I'm not a cop, and I don't want to have sex with you. Oh, we've heard that before, the blonde said. That's the oldest story, the redhead said. Three things I never learned to fall for. The check's in the mail, I won't come in your mouth, and I'm not a cop. The short Spanish-looking girl laughed hard. Her Iron City beer sprayed over her dress front and onto the redhead, which caused her to laugh even harder. Tina, come on, the redhead said. You're getting me soaked. Guys promise you the sun, moon, and the stars, and you bargain down from there, Tina said. I got good radar, the blonde said to Kalinyak. I think you're all right. And she can't turn down a trick, the redhead said. She's greedy. Older men make me want to throw up, the dark-haired girl said, laughing. Preacher laughed so hard he snorted through his nose. You cold, little bitch, you cold. Who you calling little shit? You got to look up to a midget, Preacher said. Take off them platform shoes, you just about disappear. How much, Kalinyak said. Remainder of the night, two bills, the blonde said. Hey, Preacher said, he don't want to buy you, he just want to rent you for a little while. Watch your mouth, Jigaboo, the blonde said. Hey, hey, don't you go jigabooing me, Preacher said. Well, just don't be messing with my business. She don't mean nothing by it, the Spanish horse said. I didn't know she had racist tendencies is all. I call you Jigger all the time. That's the way we call it. What's the big deal, the Spanish horse said. You a spick midget. You allowed to. Two hundred's fine, Kalinyak said. A-OK, the blonde said, putting her arm through his. And a bottle of imp. The other two girls laughed. Hey, old man, she needs to get drunk to do you. <laughs> there was a car parked at the curb, a gypsy job, an old Chrysler with decals that said, Moe's Family Rides. Callan Heck and the blonde got in. On the short side, on the short ride to the hotel, the blonde opened the Imperial and drank straight from the bottle. I like this place, the blonde said as they walked through the empty lobby. I've, scarred here, I've scored here from time to time. While they waited for the elevator, she gazed at herself 
in a mirrored pillar opposite the elevator. Moving up to the, his room, she said, let's see your money. I'll have to write you a check. I'll <laughs> forget it. How about a credit card? Don't be an asshole, she said. He pulled out $200 bills and handed them to her. They moved out of the elevator and down the hall to his room. What's your name, Kalinyak said. Laura. You ever see that movie, Dr. Zhivago? That's the girl's name from that movie. My mother loved that movie. My father was Russian. You ever hear of the Russian mafia? That was my father. They killed him. Who? The communists, she said. They entered the room. You must have been very young, Kalinyak said. My mother said they shot him into little pieces. I'm sorry. I don't give a fuck. Mother said he was basically an asshole. Very big in the secret police. Hmm. Neither spoke for a long moment. On the night table, Kalinyak's travel clock ticked softly. So, Laura said, so. She laughed. That story about your father, I made it up. She took another long drink from the whiskey bottle. Look at this. She walked to a picture of Kalinyak's daughter. Kalinyak travels, by the way, with, with a, a set of pictures of the murdered girl, his murdered daughter. She walked to a picture of Kalinyak's daughter and held it in her hand. She's cute. Daughter, granddaughter, daughter. She put the picture down and began to undress. No, Kalinyak said. I just want to talk. What? I want to ask you questions. You're weird. I want to talk about Jack Dahlgren, <laughs> another weird one. Did you know him? Knew him very well, sick fuck. Loved money more than life. Had contempt for people. He couldn't move his mouth without lying. What else do you want to know about him? Who killed him? Oh, there'd be a line twice around this hotel for the people who wanted to kill him. This German girl, Marika, very possible. I might have killed him if I had the chance. Why? She didn't talk for a long moment. She was seated on the bed. She kicked off her shoes and took another swallow of whiskey. He beat me up so bad he put me in the hospital. Why? He was going to teach me a lesson. Ah, oh, it's a long story. He was bad. Come here. She leaned back on the bed and opened her arms. He just stood there. You don't think I'm pretty? You're very pretty. I just don't have the heart for this kind of thing. I've seen too much, let's put it that way. I've seen a lot too. I'm sure you have. There was a time... Ah, no more. What I've seen men do to women. Some women deserve it. He didn't speak. She closed her eyes. He moved to her and shook her. What? She said. I have some questions. Later, she said. Her breathing deepened and she was asleep. He moved to a large chair opposite the bed. He sat in it. He did not close his eyes. He stared at the picture of his daughter. He fell asleep in the chair. He slept badly. At some point, he felt someone tugging at his arm. He looked up. It was his daughter. She was mouthing something that he couldn't make out. Yes, my darling, he said. Yes, yes. He was awakened by the phone ringing. Anyhow, that's, that's that. That's that.
now, um, I, 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 I think maybe if, if does anybody have any questions they want to ask uh, uh, of a real live author? What year is it live author? <laughs> what year does this take place? Yeah. 1998. Really? Yeah. Uh, I. Uh, uh, I, I was trying to I was trying to get the I was trying to get the geography of downtown Pittsburgh right. They, there were some changes that were made after '98. I would have I would have preferred to 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 set the book later, but then it got all involved with 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 uh, uh, with years and chronology and with. Uh, the Ninth Street Bridge became the Roberto Clemente Bridge after '98, so I got involved with all of that. So I decided to set it in '98, so I wouldn't have to deal with with a lot of those things. You know. I felt from the tone of before that. Well, you know, it's interesting because I we 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 had had a little exchange with a Pittsburgh critic, a critic for the Post Gazette. And I mentioned to him that I actually haven't lived in Pittsburgh since the 50s. So I said, there may be an anachronistic, an anachronistic feel to this book. Because although I said it in 1998, it's still being written with the sensibility of the 50s, you know. Yeah, so I'm not sure if that's good or bad, but that, that, that's, that's the way I did it, you know. There were, I love it. There was, you know, there was this, this there's always that problem of... Of, I'm sure you know you, those of you who are writers know this, because when, when you're writing, some things are true, and some things are accurate, and then some things are invented, and 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 creation is always a mixture of real and fantasy. If you if you think of a play like Streetcar Named Desire, which we think of as a naturalistic play, but it's actually very poetic, you know, and there are things that that. That exist and then things that don't exist and things that are poetry and then things that are naturalism, you know, and 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 so when you're when you're writing, it's always a tricky juggling. Uh, um, um, and and someone once said, "Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story." So so you don't want to say, but it wasn't. But it was a Berto Clemente bridge. Well, I can't be concerned about that now. You know, I had to do this. Um, um, and and whether or not you know you know I have these two kind of of, of 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 clubs in that area, the Aida and the other one the preacher works at, and whether there are clubs like that in that area, I have no idea, you know. So so you do tend to to part real and part part fantasy, you know. And I got I got involved in a whole there there's a family in Pittsburgh, a very wealthy family who 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 do a lot of. Uh, um, uh, buildings and things named after them called the Benedims. Well, I got I got involved. If I started, if I used the real name Benedim, then I'd have to say, is that a Benedim building? Was that the Benedict? So I changed it to Benedict, so people couldn't say, but that isn't the. I said, no, it's not the Benedim. It's the Benedict. You know. So that's that's the juggling act that 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 you know that a writer does. Um, well, you know, I've been a fan of your novels for years. We've known each other for such a long time. And my favorite has been Kabbalah. No, I think that that probably, it, it seems to be, oh, here's my, here's my son, <coughs> Kyle. You missed the reading. <coughs> but Kyle is a new, is a new father. So I'm, so I'm a, so I'm a, I'm a grandfather. And that's his lady there, Vanessa. And uh, and uh, Danny, his his friend, 
Is back there? But you missed the reading. Sorry, folks. But you got here. <laughs> um, well, I think Kabbalah, you know, you know, Kabbalah is interesting. If anyone has read it, 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 it involved a lot of research because when I went into writing the book, I knew nothing about the Kabbalah. I knew almost nothing about Orthodox Judaism. And I have a main character who was an Orthodox rabbi. And I had to do an immense amount of, of, of research for that book. So it was a very arduous book to write because uh, I think had I known when I started writing it that it was going to be that difficult, I probably wouldn't have written it because it was just too much. Yelly. Uh, David, why is this, uh, why is Iron City ultimately a novel? I, I mean, you read only the one excerpt, it still sounds driven by dialogue. It makes me curious what the play or screenplay version would have been like. The, well, you know, I never got beyond the opening notes. Uh, you know, I never wrote it as a play at all. Mm. It's a lot different from my, the novel before this, Fat Lady Sings, which I actually wrote as a screenplay uh, first, and then I wrote it as a novel. Um, but 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 this one I never really wrote it as a play. But there's a lot of dialogue throughout throughout the uh, throughout the book, as I think there are in in a, in a lot of my novels. I I I enjoy writing dialogue. I guess being a playwright, you know, I like writing novels, and uh, it's also a lot easier. You know, I mean, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the I think one of the one of the great novels. Uh, great dialogue novels was Friends of Eddie Coyle, if you know Friends of Eddie Coyle. And it was written almost entirely in dialogue. And, uh, and I was always really um, uh, moved because, because he, he liked my, my first novel, Paradise Road, and I admired his work so much. And when he wrote this really nice review of Paradise Road, uh, it it was it was uh, important to me, but that's essentially a book of dialogue. Uh, that's a gambling book, right? Uh, Friends of Eddie Coyle. No, it's the Irish Mafia in in Boston. They made it into a a film with um, uh, Robert Mitchum. Yeah, played Eddie Coyle. Yeah, it's a good film. Not as good as the novel. The novel's really the novel's really terrific. Oh, okay. They're very good. Anybody have 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 a really important question that they need answered? What, what do you think of uh, Under the Volcano? But it's a very strong book. I mean, it's it's a, it's a uh, devastating book. You know, yeah. But but an alcoholic written written by an alcoholic. Yeah. Yeah. In Mexico. Yeah. All right. I'm going to interrupt so that we can. Get, there's a lot of food here. Yay, 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 yay. <laughs> you have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.